there's enough empirical data and research out here to substantiate why DEI is critical to your business success. And BlackRock, which is the organization that I work for, we're no different in that respect. We fully understand that in order for us to continue to be leading edge in the asset management industry, DEI is something that we believe needs to be embedded into everything that we do. It's not just about talent and culture and workforce, that it's about our business. It's about our clients. And it's about how we're showing up in the marketplace from a foundation and charitable giving perspective. So we see it as a fulsome strategy. And I think a lot of organizations are now making that leap and talking about it in that way. The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by the managing director and global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at BlackRock, Michelle Gatson-Williams. Michelle is responsible for further strengthening and accelerating the company's effort to foster an inclusive culture and join BlackRock with more than 25 years of experience as an advocate for equality within corporate America. She's a thought leader around diversity and inclusion and the author of two books, Climb, which tells the story of her journey up the corporate ladder and her latest Driven by Intention, a game-changing guide for women who want to transform the way that they work and create their own success. Michelle is a seasoned diversity practitioner with experience working in the consumer goods and pharmaceutical industries before transitioning to financial services. She joins me now to talk all about her amazing career, making the workplace more equitable, and the impact that social responsibility is having on the industry. Welcome, Michelle. How are you doing today? I'm so excited for you to be a part of the Pathfinders today. I've been looking forward to this day for so long. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Dee. It's really nice to see you again. You know, it's amazing. As we've gotten to know each other, you've told me so many different stories about how you made it to where you are, but most importantly, how devoted you are to you know fostering a more diverse and inclusive work environment. And I'm curious, what's one of the biggest moments or events in your early life that influenced the path that allowed you to choose your career and where you are? Because you could essentially do anything if you wanted to. You know, it's an interesting question. And I'm going to start with saying that I didn't necessarily choose this work. This work chose me. And one of the things that I typically say to people is that there are some of us in a corporate arena who have an easy go of it where you can take the proverbial elevator up to the C-suite and others, not so much. We have a different path. We have to take the stairs with a backpack and no air conditioning. And when you get to the top of the stairs, the door is locked. So the question becomes, what are some of the kinds of things that we need to do in order to 
get people to open that door for us, allies Mm. and champions and others. And so that was fascinating to me in terms of my career, which started 30 years ago. I started in consumer goods. I then transitioned to big pharma, professional services, and now financial services. So I've kind of made the rounds. I've also lived in a number of different countries in terms of my career. I've lived in Hong Kong and Switzerland and Istanbul, Turkey. So I knew that whatever it was that I was going to do, it had to have purpose and it needed to have impact. And so this notion of equality, social justice, leaving workplaces in better condition than when I arrived, that was really the foundation of my work. And so when I say that this work chose me, I didn't necessarily choose it. I started my career in marketing. My father's a retired marketing exec. I was replicating his career instead of carving out a niche for myself. And so I then, after a few years, said, I like what I'm doing. I don't love it. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to leave the company I was working for, work for another company that allowed me to make rotations throughout various business functions from marketing, HR, finance, advertising, all the way around the organization. And my last stop was in strategic planning, organizational development, and HR. And my assignment was, at that time, to create an affirmative action diversity strategy for that company. And so after six months of research and going to the best and brightest thinkers around this work, I fell in love with the premise of creating workplaces that add value, where every single individual can realize their ambition and potential. Uh, And I really wanted to take part in that because it was appeasing both sides of my brain. It was the analytical side, but it was also I love people. And so to help them realize what's possible and their ambition, that's essentially how I fell into diversity practice. And so I've been doing this work ever since. I fell into the work. I've been doing it ever since. And I love what I do. But I think the foundation of it all is leaving these workplaces in better condition than when I arrived. I like that analogy of that stairwell when you're just climbing up the back, you know, back staircase and you got this backpack. And for some reason, at the first floor, it feels like it weighs like 10 pounds. And then by the time it gets to like the 100th floor, you got like, you know, 250 pounds in your backpack. You have no water. You have no food. And it's sweltering hot. And all of a sudden, you're just like pushing on that door trying to get in and it's locked. So in that situation, do you go back down? Or do you have to try to figure out how to MacGyver that situation? And what was the lesson that gave you the tools to kind of figure out how to use, you know, bubble gum and piece of paper and tools that you have to jerry-rig in order to find your way through that door? Or was it just a communication plan to allow somebody else on the other side to kind of find a way to open the door for you and not make a loud sound? So I think it's a combination of all of what you just said. So I think I've MacGyvered it. I think that I've just been chameleon-like. I've adjusted in some cases. I think it requires all of those things. But I think the undergird of everything that I'm saying is that we each have a different experience. And some of us have an experience that ebbs and flows, and some of us has the twists and turns. But with every step that you take to get toward your North Star, whatever that is, you get that much closer to achieving your highest aspiration, whatever that is. And I think that you need to call it out. You need to speak your North Star into existence. And so when I talk about the climb, when I talk about the stairs and the backpack and all of those kinds of things, that's how I describe my own personal and professional career journey. As a woman, as a woman of color, I think my journey might have been a little different than some others. So at any rate, I think to ascend wherever you are in whatever organization or whatever industry you work in, 
I just believe in telling the unvarnished truth of how I got there. And so my first book, Klein, that you referenced speaks to that. It speaks to the fact that, yes, I've had a wonderful career, but there were some situations. There were some missteps, mistakes, mishaps that have happened along the way. And I believe in complete vulnerability. If I'm going to tell a story, I'm going to give you the unvarnished truth, my truth. And so that's what that book did. And so I, I just wanted to focus on really addressing and dissecting obstacles and offer pragmatic solutions to individuals, especially the next generation of talent, because none of this is easy. And it looks sexy from the outside, but I think when you come in from the outside and you try to carve out a niche for yourself, it requires work, a lot of work. And you were doing this before it became a popular idea in the boardroom. I mean, the notion of diversity inclusion has been around since the 70s, right? A lot of people don't know the historical context of it when it relates to the government and so on and so forth and supplier diversity and working with minority-held businesses. I mean, it's been a, a long story that has evolved in several different ways and, and it's had a popular rise and then it's also had its challenges along the way, but then it also kind of started to come back and then teeter off and then George Floyd changed everything. It became a stronger dialogue and more companies started to kind of think with intention but before, in the time as you were moving towards that direction and working in that area, you know, how hard was it? And who were some of the people or what were some of the situations that became turning points for you that allowed you to kind of feel as though you were willing to still make that climb? Because sometimes, you know, you, you get up against the door and, and I'm talking about the, the 100th floor and you're not just climbing 100 flights of stairs. You're climbing 200, 300, 400 flights of stairs and it's not a 200 pound backpack. It's a four, 500 pound, it's a thousand pound backpack. So there had to be someone along the way. And I talk about this all the time, you know, to my friends about, you know, in football, you know, when you play the game, you're surrounded by a team of people. And when you transition from the game, you still have to have another team of people that's going to take you along that journey or else you're not going to transition at all. And that has to do with any type of thing, moment or person that needs to transition. You need people around you. So who are the people that helped you carry your bag? What was the moment that allowed you to know that the bag was worth the weight and the climb was worth the journey? Well, I want to go to the first part of your question in terms of how this work has evolved over the years, because as you can imagine, in 30 years when I first started, this was really about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. It was a headcount exercise. How many women, how many people of color, how many individuals with disabilities? So it was more about that. And as I take a step back and reflect on the evolution of DEI in 30 years, I think we've gone from what I've described as... We're now in a movement. It's no longer a moment in time where we, we are reacting in real time to what transpires in society. So I, I continue to be impressed and more importantly, inspired by the unwavering leadership, the steadfast commitment that I've seen in these multinational organizations over the past few years. Mm. I've seen movement with a real sense of urgency around issues pertaining to the workforce and culture. And all of these things lead to the success. These are all key performance indicators. So I've been impressed by the relentless focus to ensure that DEI is not just simply about doing the right thing or the nice thing to do or relegated to just the optics of what diversity represents. It's really about making an organization better, bigger, better, bolder, faster, but understanding that through demographic shifts, through psychographic shifts, that there are some things that you need to do differently. 
in terms of really addressing the unique needs and wants of a diverse consumer. And I think that is now the conversation and I'm enjoying this work so much more. So to get to the other part of your question, I've had many champions, advocates, sponsors, mentors, individuals who have had my back in this work. And I would have to admit that I don't believe that I would sit where I am currently had it not been for some of the wonderful CEOs that I've had the pleasure and the honor to work with and for around this work. And that's really what makes this work enjoyable for me. When I know that someone is giving me air cover, because look, at 30 years ago, this work was not popular at all, especially in certain industries where the business case wasn't quite as clear, where no one could really articulate it in a way that made sense. Mm. Now everyone is able to do that. There's enough empirical data and research out here to substantiate why DEI is critical to your business success. And BlackRock, which is the organization that I work for, we're no different in that respect. I think we fully understand that in order for us to continue to be leading edge in the asset management industry, DEI is something that we believe needs to be embedded into everything that we do. It's not just about talent and culture and workforce, that it's about our business, it's about our clients, and it's about how we're showing up in the marketplace from a foundation and charitable giving perspective. So we see it as a fulsome strategy, and I think a lot of organizations are now making that leap and talking about it in that way. Mm. I think about this term, it's the value of the voices. And the voices, you know, if they all sound the same, it's monotone. And when there are different voices, it's a harmony. And that's the most pure sound, the choral environment. And that chorus can't just be made up of one person. That chorus is made up of thousands upon thousands of individuals. And they're singing to other people that can receive that message as well. And so I do think about harmony as well. And sometimes it's a challenge to make that harmony work. Yeah. Have you found one piece or one point or one thing that gives people that aha? Like, I get it. It makes sense. Well, I, I think with the evolution of DEI in practice, multinational organizations have now declared it as it mattering. It matters to the leadership. Many organizations like BlackRock have been on this positive trajectory, which has resulted in material progress that we've seen over the years. I think with the convergence of societal injustices like George Floyd, the global pandemic, you have Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Asian hate crimes, anti-Semitism. I mean, there's so much happening in society that a lot of these, these things are starting to seep into our workplaces. And I think there's a burden that our employees carry. So we have to respond to that. We have to be able to provide a safe haven for people. We have to provide safety. We have to provide a level of comfort. So I just think that a lot of these organizations have really done a great job of understanding that these incidences across the global business landscape has resulted in a call to action that a lot of us have never seen before. And we're responding to it in a way that it just makes sense for an organization. So I think that we're going to see more. DEI is not going away. I think there's enough empirical data and research out here to say that the next generation of leaders are almost demanding. They're making their career decisions based on how well an organization progresses in DEI. So if you're not doing it, you're going to lose talent and you're not going to be an employer of choice, which is, I think, what most organizations want. So I think this is an evolution, but I like where we are today. 
versus 30 years ago when I started. I think it's more of a strategic conversation Mm-hmm. that it's unfortunate that these incidences that I mentioned earlier have had to occur in order for some industries to get on board. But I'm happy that we're here and we're making progress. But there's still much more work to do. I just want to make sure that that point is clear. Oh, there's oh, still a lot you, more work to do. You got you got me on your side in terms of there being the need for more work to be done. And I'd imagine, you know, from Phyllis Van Heusen to your work within the pharmaceutical industry of American Novartis and now BlackRock, it all showed up differently. And the boardroom might have taken a little bit more time and maybe still is in the same place it was to sort of appreciate the notion of diversity and how that should show up. When you think about the world of of BlackRock, when you think about sort of your perspective on companies, you mentioned a couple of times, obviously from an international understanding, how does it translate overseas, right? You know, because I think about it all the time, you know, here in America, oftentimes we're focused on what we're doing, but maybe with global intention, it becomes sort of a normalized discussion, or maybe it already has become a normalized discussion. We just take a little bit of time to catch up. Yeah. An effective DEI strategy, in my view, is one that is global with local relevance, depending upon the geography or the country or the local legislation. And so DEI has, or diversity, has a very different connotation and definition depending upon where you are in the world. So you have to customize and localize your strategy accordingly. So when I lived in Switzerland, the common denominator, at least across borders and boundaries, no matter where you sit in the world, is gender. Women make up 50% of the world's population, so gender is a common thread. And then there are other facets or subsets of diversity that we also take into account, like generational diversity. It could be religion. It could be your sexual orientation. It could be ability or disability. So there's so many other dimensions of diversity that we have to take into account, but you have to customize your strategy depending upon the needs of that particular country or geography, so where it makes sense, where DEI makes sense. So that's essentially how you do it. Well, diversity is not only sort of top of mind in terms of what people are doing with their companies, but it's also top of mind in terms of how people have lived and sort of moved and evolved throughout their own career. And what were some of the things that you added to your tool belt? Because you have the climb and the ascension, and sometimes you have to kind of make a choice in terms of different paths. What tools have you taken from each of your individual paths to the place that you are now that you've brought alongside with you? In other words, you know, what did you learn from the pharmaceutical world? What did you learn from the clothing world that's now allowed you to transition clearly doing incredibly well into the financial sector? You know, it's a great question. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, I've been a diversity practitioner for a long time, for over 25 years in four different industries. And what I've learned is that membership in the corporate elite doesn't come easy. It requires more than just intellectual horsepower. Mm. That's table stakes. It requires grit, a keen sense of self, mentors, sponsors, and a willingness to consistently perform at a higher standard. And you know how the old saying goes, I'm not sure if this was told to you and your family, but certainly in mine, you have to be twice as good, twice as smart, and you have to be twice as talented, and you might get half as far as your peers. Mm. So my parents had a very high expectation for themselves. I'm one of three girls. So they also had that same level of expectation for their daughters. And so I've consistently challenged myself to keep up, to push myself, to strive to do my best and to compete 
with the best and the brightest. And, and this is how I approach my work every single day, because I knew that as a woman and as a woman of color, that I was competing in systems that wasn't necessarily built for individuals who looked like me. That's essentially how I approach my work every single day. You know, one of the things that one of my mentors has said to me, and I've had some wonderful mentors over the years who are current and sitting CEOs and chairmen and others, that success means living a life of meaning and value. And a mentor told me once that passion fuels success and that success fuels passion. And so my passion is the full force of energy that I give to the work of DEI every single day. And so my passion is my why and my purpose is my conviction. And they're definitely intertwined. And so my passion is developing the next generation of leaders to realize what's possible for them and to realize their full potential and to envision what's possible for them. And it's up to me as a CDO to make sure that I make the possible possible. So there's a CEO that I used to work for a few years ago who used to say, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And I think that that's so true. So that's one of many lessons that I've learned over the years and that I carry Ooh. with me every single day. Would you say my passion is my purpose and my conviction? Yeah, my passion is my why and my purpose is my conviction. Woo! And they're definitely interlinked. And one of the other things I would say is my father, from the time I could probably speak, I'm an identical twin, as you know, and I have a younger sister, my father. How do we know it's not her and it's just you right now? (laughs) I think you would know the difference. Uh, But at any rate, my parents believed in what I would call or describe as unrelenting straight talk. And what that means is every morning as my sisters and I would prepare to go to school, my father would ask us the same three questions. So girls, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? Where do you want to go? And so these are sophisticated questions to ask kindergartners. Every morning before you went to school? Every morning without fail. He's 82 now and he just asked me yesterday and I'm approaching mid-50s. So this was his way of teaching us the importance of articulating and expressing our thoughts in a very clear, concise way. And so, you know, what, one of the things that dad used to say to me is, we are not here on this earth to occupy space. We're here to make a difference. And it's up to each of us to determine what that difference is. And for me, that difference is the work that I do in diversity, equity, and inclusion every day. And so I do it with courage. I choose courage over comfort. I'm that constructive disruptor. I am that person in the room that is going to, there's this, uh, if you can see on my wall here, it says consensus make you, makes you comfortable, dissent makes you stronger. I believe that every day. And that's how I show up every single day to do the work that I do. And it's large scale transformation work. It's change management. That's what this is. I'm trying to think about all the things my mom talked to me and my dad talked to me about before I went to school. I think they only just said like, did I do my homework? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they asked that too. My parents, trust me, Southern <laughs> parents, they, they were like, okay, did you do your homework? Maybe my mom or dad said some, some other things, but I don't know if I, if, if it was the same three things, I, I think that's really, really important. I think everybody needs to be able to regroup every morning before you wake up and go do whatever you do, right? Set your intention on the day. And I think that's, you know, my opinion in terms of how your father sort of kicked off the morning by making sure that you're intention and now you're continually doing that. And in our podcast, we like to get inside the minds of leaders and innovators like yourself that transform the space that they're in. And I think 
to your point, those are the key operating principles that you have as a leader. Are there any more, right? Are there any specific things that you've had scribed across the top of your walls in your office that you think about day in and day out? Or are there things that you've added to the list that your father mentioned to you every morning that now you say to yourself every morning? A couple of things. You know, they say he who dares, dares greatly. And I've made a commitment to myself and to the workforce that I have the pleasure of operating in every single day. My work matters. My voice matters. And so I'm not going to sit in these rooms and stay silent. I'm going to speak up. I'm going to live boldly. I, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm a student of Brene Brown. I love her. And she has a podcast and books and all of that. I choose courage over comfort in my line of work. Mm. I'm going into the sandstorm. Just give me a pair of goggles. I'm going in. So you have to approach this work with a sense of optimism, with a sense of conviction, with a sense of purpose. Because if you don't, if your purpose is not clear, no matter what field you go into, if your purpose is not clear, the likelihood or the chance of you being incredibly good at what you do, I think is greater when you know why you're there. I know why I'm here at BlackRock. I know why I chose DEI as a career path. I just think that if your dreams and your aspirations don't scare you, they're not big enough. I knew from the time I was seven years old that I was going to be an executive. My father is a retired executive. My mother's an entrepreneur. So I saw the suits, you know, my father would wear tailored suits to work every day. So I saw the briefcase and I said, I want some of that. I just didn't know exactly what industry I wanted to go into. But Mm. all that I knew was that I had a, a unique perspective And I knew that I had a voice that needed to be heard. And so it's no mystery that I'm in this space. Those who have been close to me growing up or who knew me as a young girl, I loved geography. So I would say, I'm going to live in different countries and I'm going to travel all over the globe. And I have. I've done those things. So I think sometimes you just need to speak it into the universe and the universe will conspire to make sure that it all happens for you. Well, it's happening and it will continue to do so. And I just recently saw, you know, one of your LinkedIn posts talking about Hispanic Heritage Month and and what BlackRock is doing and expanding its relationship with, you know, management leadership for tomorrow. I think, was it by signing Hispanic Equity and Work Launch Partner? So, you know, what, what can you tell you about this initiative? Because I think that a lot of companies have these initiative and not everybody's able to fully conceptualize what that means and how that shows itself in both the business and also in the industry. So you're speaking about the MLT, that certification that we just signed on? Okay, yes. And so- So MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Correct, correct. And what I like about what John Rice and his team is doing at MLT and what really differentiates, I think, what they're doing is they're intentional about making sure that their partners, the firms, the companies that sign up to do this are not just engaged in a conversation, but that they really understand what they're solving for Mm -hmm. with that particular population. So they take you through like a a rigorous assessment. They ask you a lot of questions. They comb through all your practices and policies and all the things that you claim to be doing in DEI, and they hold you accountable to that. So they look at things like the representation of your workforce. They look at things like compensation practices. They look at things like, How do you promote a more inclusive work environment? Your business practices like supplier diversity and your charitable giving. So they comb through all of it and they rate you based on that. 
I think it's a wonderful opportunity for a corporation to sign on to have this third party vendor hold you accountable to living up to the promise. So that's another mechanism for us to hold ourselves accountable. And we do it in a very public way. So I think it's a wonderful partnership that we're certainly proud of. And just as proud of that, I'm sure you're proud of the work that you did testifying in front of Congress. I mean, I didn't, I even know this. I mean, I like, I know you and you're prepping for a podcast, you know, just to try to figure out, oh my gosh, like the deep dive into Michelle's mind and her own experiences. And I, and I find out that you, you testified in front of Congress financial you know, services subcommittee. I mean, I I'm just riding on a plane last night and I just figured out what the, what a bureaucrat is, let alone you're testifying in front of Congress. Yeah. What was that experience like and how did you prepare for that? Well, that was one of the most profound experiences that I've had in my entire career. So the House Financial Services Committee, House of Representatives, they called all of the CEOs from the large asset management firms to the White House, to the Hill to share our diversity strategies and they would give us feedback on what we're doing. So our chairman and CEO, Larry Fink, was not available that day. And so I was asked to do it for the firm. Wow. And so I did. I did. And so I talked through our strategy, all of the pillars of our strategy. I talked about the things that are going incredibly well from a DEI perspective, but I also talked about areas of opportunity improvement for the firm. Mm. And they gave us feedback in real time. As an industry, it wasn't any particular slight against any company that was presenting. It was as an industry, you know, you all can do more and do better. And they're holding us accountable to that. As a matter of fact, just this week, I will be presenting an update since that December 7th discussion last year. So, you know, these are the things that, you know, we're proud of. We are here to talk about the things that we're doing, we have nothing to hide. As a matter of fact, we're one of a few firms that's going through a racial equity DEI assessment right now. And so we're the only asset management firm that has signed on to do a full comprehensive assessment on racial equity and DEI. And so we're in the throes of that right now. And so we're in an incredible spot. I'm really proud of this firm. I'm proud to work for a firm that is this invested in the work that I do every day because no one wants to waste their time. There's no indifference Mm. here. We are steadfast in doing the right thing. And so I'm really proud to work for this organization and the leadership along with it. Now, I know you don't get nervous. Okay. I know that because you've been preparing for these moments since you were seven years old. So you don't get nervous playing football. I didn't get nervous going on the field, but I definitely got an increased heart rate. Right. And I definitely had to kind of go through my own self speak to make sure I was on point and ready to rock. Do you go through that same type of scenario when you're in that moment? I mean, Larry's out, shells in, you're going to the hill. I mean, going back to the climb to the top of the stairs, it's hard. And sometimes you get into these moments where you're slightly uncomfortable. You mentioned this before, right? but you got to work through these uncomfortable moments in order to sort of achieve the goals that you have for yourself. So how do you kind of get through that time when you're sitting there? And what was some of that self-speak? You know, there's no imposter syndrome that lives here, at least with me, you know, where I will sit and question where I am, what I'm doing, how I got here, or to sit in the seat that I sit in for this firm or any other firm that I've worked for over the years. So I approach my work with a level of confidence. If I don't know this work, 
I'm a student of DEI. I've grown up in it. I've been mentored by some of the best and brightest thinkers on DEI. I presented at the White House. I presented at MIT and some of the top schools on the planet. If I don't know my craft, and if I'm sitting across from these people, then shame on me. So it's all about preparation. And so I took the time to really just upskill myself in terms of the current state of play in DEI from a research and empirical data perspective. I went into it saying, okay, I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to say, this is what we're doing well, but there's still an opportunity for us to do more. And there's still an opportunity for us to do better in these areas. So I think if you go in with that mindset of, I'm going to do my best, that's all that's expected of me. Of course, you're going to give the unvarnished truth because you're testifying and just tell it the way the story needs to be told and in a way that's compelling and in a way that makes sense for a layman person, because it's easy to get caught up in jargon and all those kinds of things. So I think it was really just about preparation. And so that was a proud moment for me and one that I will cherish for the remainder of my working career. So you're saying you weren't sweating at all? Like nothing. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> you were. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Unvarnished uh, truth. Straight uh, to the point. I know you were nervous. I was. <laughs> yes, I was nervous, but I also felt prepared. But you owned it. I did. I owned it. I loved I felt it. prepared. I felt confident in what I was saying. And I just didn't go off script. I had the script in front of me. I have the script in my head. And as long as you stick to the facts, you should be good. I love that. I, I I hope everybody while they're listening, they're as I always say, you gotta take notes. Yeah. Michelle is dropping dimes everywhere. And <laughs> as we're coming to a close, two questions. One, just specifically to BlackRock. When we're thinking about the investing world as an individual, as a collective out there, how should we be thinking about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion when it comes to making investments? That's one. And then I wanna, you know, plug your book and then get a last second thought as well. Yeah. As we think and become a lot more sophisticated around diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly on the commercial side of DEI in financial services or asset management, I think we have to start thinking more strategically about the problems that we're trying to solve for in historically underfunded or undercapitalized communities. How do we bridge the wealth gap? Like those are the big questions that I think mm. we should be asking ourselves. And I think if we can start solving for those things, then I think we are doing well. And that's one of the many reasons why I decided after working in professional service, why I decided to come back into financial services is I'm able to help my colleagues and those who are investors on the commercial side of our business or the client facing side of our business is to think about solving the most complex problem in our industry. And that is to help all individuals, regardless of who they are, to retire with dignity and to bridge the wealth gap because it certainly exists. And I also wanna go back to, if I may, you had asked me earlier about lessons that I've learned along the way. And there are a couple of things that I want your listeners to understand is that I've had a wonderful career. 
And there were a number of lessons that I've learned along the way. Some of the things that I've done, incredibly proud of. And some things were lessons learned. But with each step, and we talked about that climb, the stairs, I've gotten closer to my aspiration, my North Star. And so each experience has made me stronger as a professional. And nonetheless, I didn't make it here by myself. I had a Mm. very strong ecosystem of individuals who have helped me along the way from a spouse to my family and friends, mentors and sponsors. But there are a couple of things that I want to say is that with every misstep or mistake that's happened, that has been for my betterment. That has helped me to grow. The things that have happened to me have just made me a better professional because you won't make the same mistake twice. At least most people don't. I see the good in all things and each experience is a roadmap that has allowed me to just stretch and grow and learn. And I enjoy learning and upskilling myself. And every confusion is insight. Every fail is a step in the right direction. Mm. Every risk is a reward waiting to happen. So I'd say, you know, there are going to be good days. There will be bad days. But stay the course and forge ahead. You can do it. Now, you talked about your book, Climb. Yes. Empowering women in the workplace is an important issue to you and your latest book, Driven by Intention. Yes. Give a nice little plug. It's now available <laughs> wherever people get their books. And it's a guide for women who want to transform the way they work and create success. So, uh, well, it's so, a guide for men and women. Men and men women. And women. And okay, women. so tell us a little bit about that book. Yes. You've given so much advice. Is there any more advice that you'd like to give to women and men about you know, climbing higher, especially on the corporate ladder? Yeah, the advice I would say is reach back, pull others along. This is not about you and you alone. I believe that it is my indelible responsibility to ensure that another person succeeds. And so I believe that it is my role to guard, protect, champion, Mm. advocate, mentor, sponsor, whatever it is, it is my responsibility to ensure that every single individual can realize their ambition and whatever things or policies or processes that I can put in place to ensure that that happens, then I'm doing my job. And no rolling up of the drawbridge once you've crossed. Mm, I've seen that that. movie before. I've I've seen that movie before. You know, some people, they make it across to the other side. It's like victory and they put the stake in the ground and there you go. Pull others along. Don't roll up the drawbridge once you've crossed. You make sure that there are others that also have an opportunity to make it across to the other side along with you. So we always like to end the podcast by asking, what is your a story or what is your favorite deal or celebratory meal? We call this meals and deals. So tell us a story of your favorite deal and celebratory meal. Favorite deal is when I decided to retire early a few years ago to start my own consultancy practice called Ceiling Breakers, which I've since sold that practice to another firm. And I celebrated with a meal. I enjoy seafood. So any meal that involves seafood, shellfish of any kind, I'm all in. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your sage advice, your leadership, keeping the bridge down so that so many others can cross, as well as leaving a legacy in written context so that people can continue to study the work that you've laid the pathway in you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think it, it remains to be said that your father, albeit at 82, as he's listening today, is going to be asking you those three same very questions every morning. And I think everybody else should be asking themselves as well as their family members, too. So congratulations on all your success at, at BlackRock. And thank you so much for joining us today on The Pathfinders. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. 
Thank you. A special thanks again to Michelle Gatson Williams for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work she is doing to bring more equity into the financial services industry and learn how BlackRock is coming at socially responsible investing and deal making from a whole new perspective. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada.